Jay, sometimes I wonder about Franklin Richards. Oh man, Miles, don't do that. Down that road lies only deep-seated frustration and probably mild terror. No, I mean, he's really powerful, right? Sure, functionally omnipotent sometimes. So he's got to be the crux of a lot of alternate timelines. Fewer than you'd think. Any notable alternate versions, at least? Well, you're already familiar with the Franklin of Earth-811. Yeah, anti-Sentinel revolutionary in a relationship with Rachel Gray. Right, and there's a bunch where he grows up and leads the Fantastic Four. Hmm, boring. It's not boring. In one of them, he's a full-body portal to the negative zone. But I do get what you mean. Franklin is so far out of the normal range in his basic version that it's hard to push him that much further and get anywhere. Does anyone really manage? Well, he's basically a god at the end of Secret Wars. Eh, that's been done. Ooh, and there is Earth-X. Is he uh, evil there or something? Not exactly. What's not exactly evil? Galactus. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 189 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to us from a convention. We did a convention. It was great. I think it went pretty well. I feel like I'm still recovering from it. Like, I just want to sleep for about the next four and a half days at least. God, seriously. That's a, that's a fine plan, and I fully support it. It was a super good convention, though. It was really, really good to see everybody, and you remain the nicest ever, and we had a really, really good live show, and my mom broke the internet. She totally did. So Jay's mom dressed up as Rule 63 Cable, and Jay dressed up as Rule 63 Hope Summers, and they looked great, and the internet apparently agreed. Well, mostly my mom. I mean, I was I was pretty much there as, as, as an accessory to her costume, as it should be, because my mother is, in fact, at this point in my head, at least the one true cable. She looked so good. She really, really did. And uh, Rob Liefeld apparently thought so, too. Yeah, um, she was at the top of his Instagram for a while. It was pretty great. But it also got me thinking about how few female characters there are who fit that particular archetype. Like, you don't really see that kind of post-apocalyptic badass, like, battle parent who's, who's grizzled and old as, as a woman ever, and it's bullshit. I mean, I go back to the first Deadpool movie's post credit scene where they were talking about casting Cable, and I forget who it was, but Deadpool suggested a, an actress to play Cable, and that would work so well. I think Cable is a character that could work equally well as a man or a woman. Like, the soldier, grizzled future, etc. thing, like, that's not really gender-specific at all. Agreed wholeheartedly. I mean, I get why there are so few female characters that way, and it kind of boils down to sexism and bullshit, but specifically in ways that have to do with both the ways that our culture is incapable of dealing with women aging and some very, very specific restrictions on characterization that tend to be associated with motherhood. Like, I feel like a lot of the things that make Cable a badass and a lot of the kind of loss associated with a story like Cable's or, say, Old Man Logan's would, with a female character, be projected as poor parenting and ultimately something that made them less sympathetic in ways that guys get to just bypass. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. It's some bullshit. Cable should be a lady. Specifically, Cable should be my mom. There we go. X-Writers, take note. 
she looked so great. Like, I want this to be a thing. Cable Mom. Well, uh, the discussion of Cable Mom, while not 100% relevant, is at least somewhat relevant because today we are talking about X-Force. And their teeth. And their teeth. They have so many teeth. And we'll get to that. So, so many teeth. For the moment, however, let's do a quick recap of Previously on X-Force. X-Force is a paramilitary mutant team that grew out of the New Mutants and now does whatever's necessary to fight evil, which mostly seems to be doing the same stuff as the other X-Teams, but way more violently. And with occasional, very occasional given the premise, murder. Oh, come on, the other X-Teams murder people occasionally too. Yeah, that's true. As much as they always talked about the sanctity of life, like, back in the mid-80s, I mean, I mean, damn, X-Men. So, who've we got on the lineup? We, of course, have, as we were discussing before, sort of, Cable, an exceptionally mysterious cyborg soldier, also kind of an asshole. He's the leader of the bunch. Domino, I, I like that you describe her here as X-Force's wine mom. You know, I think you actually came up with that term, but I'll happily take credit. Well, good for me, then. Good for us both. Um, yeah, so she has luck powers. Things just sort of fall into place for her, um, as her name implies. And she's a general total badass and also has the people skills that Cable desperately lacks. We're going to find out much later that this is not actually Domino. It's Copycat pretending to be Domino. But for all practical purposes for the moment, it's Domino. I think we actually get to find that out pretty soon. Now, one of my personal favorites we have from the old New Mutants team, in fact, from the very first incarnation of it, Cannonball, Sam Guthrie. His power is that he blasts like he's a cannonball. He's a very good kid, and I like him. He's gonna die. Eh, he'll get better, like, real quick. After Cannonball comes Boom Boom. This is Tabitha Smith. She is a former New Mutant, former X-Factor kid. She makes little plasma time bombs. Her secondary powers include sarcasm, chaos, and hella fashion. Then we have Warpath, James Proudstar. He is an Apache, and he's the younger brother of the dead X-Man Thunderbird, whose name he was using for a little while. He's also a former Hellion. That was Emma Frost's team of kind of evil pink-clad new mutants. Right now, though, he wants revenge against Emma Frost and the Hellfire Club because he's pretty sure they murdered his entire family. Rounding out the team from the Mojoverse, we've got Shatterstar. While you were studying heterosexuality, Shatterstar mastered the blade and also the permed mullet. He fought for glory in the arenas of his original universe and now fights for glory some more on Earth-616. We next have the appropriately named Feral. She is a very violent cat lady, but, like, she's sort of a cat and lady hybrid, not like she's a lady who has a whole bunch of cats. She used to have pigeons. She did. That was a whole thing. Anyway, she's a former Morlock. Those are the mutants that live underneath New York because they're outcasts for various reasons. Also, she almost killed Cannonball in training one time, and that was pretty messed up. Finally, we've got Siren, Teresa Rourke, daughter of Banshee. She's got the same sonic scream powers. She's new to the team and generally probably one of the better balanced members. Also, great costume. Well done, Rob Liefeld, on that costume. Like, seriously. She's got a ton of teeth, though. Don't we all. Anyway, back when the team was still the New Mutants, but Cable had already taken over and most of the original team had left, they fought a bunch of people. That included the Feature Disfiguring Mask and his particularly awful group of outcast mutant Morlocks. Also, the Mutant Liberation Front, a mutant terrorist group led by the Blade and Cape aficionado Strife, who mysteriously looks exactly like Cable beneath his big bladed mask. Hmm. And also they sort of fight each other a fair bit because every one of them is a loner, Dottie. A rebel. You don't want to get mixed up with a guy like them. 
What's that from? Pee-wee's Big Adventure! I love Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It was Tim Burton's first movie, and it's it's actually great. It holds up pretty well. Okay, I've, I've only seen that once, and that a fairly long time ago, but I will absolutely take your word for it. Oh man, I don't know if you remember the part with Large Marge. That was the trucker lady, and like she died a year ago or whatever, and then her face gets all crazy and monstery. I had nightmares about that for literally years, and it didn't make me like the movie less. I do remember that distinctly. Excellent. Well, that's the important part. I didn't really realize how many members of X-Force there were until we had to go through, like, all of them. Mm. They all kind of look alike. Yeah, similar faces. All right, that out of the way, though, let's jump into the first of the three issues we'll be covering today. Now, X-Force number five is called Under the Magnifying Glass, and we're going to see similar titles for the other two, Under the Gun and Under the Knife, and... I don't know that that necessarily tells us anything that the story doesn't, but it's kind of cool, so uh, I approve. What other options could there be, like under the hill, under the... Influence of illegal substances? Under the blood red sun? See, I thought hmm. yours is probably more likely. Under a blood red sky, a crowd has gathered, black and white. Uh, but not in this comic, because it's in full color. Anyway, this issue is a little unusual in that while Rob Liefeld is credited as the artist, he actually just did the layouts. He just did sort of the basic rough sketches. The pencils themselves were done by Marat Michaels and Brian Murray, but they weren't credited. Apparently, this was a screw-up by editor Bob Harris. He just forgot to credit them, which is unfortunate because, you know, they were drawing X-Force in 1992, which was like a big deal. That is really unfortunate. It's also a thing that's really easy to do if the creative credits on an issue change at the last minute, especially once you've already got solicitation and design in. And as we've discussed in recent episodes of the podcast, in 1992, a lot of stuff changed last minute. Yeah, so um, one of the things that changes most obviously in this is Juggernaut's size. Juggernaut is, is, is teeny. He is, because at 11 p.m., remember, this is early X-Force, so we're going to get a lot of random times of day uh, when scenes shift. Deadpool shows up with this suddenly small Juggernaut and also Black Tom. Now, you may recall at the end of the last arc, the Juggernaut and Black Tom fought X-Force at the World Trade Center and blew up one of the towers in a very uh, modernly uncomfortable scene. Before falling to their apparent deaths. It turns out, though, Deadpool is great at teleportation in this era, and so he brought them back to his boss, the infamous, mysterious Mr. Tolliver, clad in that most mysterious and effective of disguises, a fedora and trench coat. Even if we could see his face, we would have no idea who he was. This is a perfect disguise. Okay, the best part about this disguise, though, is that Mr. Tolliver is going to turn out way in the future to secretly be Cable's kid, Tyler. So I'm imagining him standing on someone else's shoulders in this coat. <laughs> I really like this plan. Oh, man. So Deadpool, as we mentioned, is the one that brings Black Tom and Juggernaut to Tolliver. You may know Deadpool and his incarnation in the movie. He's sort of a witty, wacky anti-hero. He breaks the fourth wall a lot. Early Deadpool was different. He was basically like asshole Spider-Man, but we still do get that silly voice. And Jay, have we ever decided who does Deadpool quotes? Have we ever even done a Deadpool quote? I Give me a second. I'm still a little bit hung up on the phrase asshole Spider-Man and the really horrifying implications of that. You, Tolliver, I'm home! Just flew in from New York and boy are my arms tired. Look what I found on the luggage carousel, boss! 
So we see the seeds of what Deadpool will become, but he's definitely not there yet. Well, anyway, Juggernaut is concerned because Black Tom in the last arc got shot by Cable. I'm not sure where he got shot because Rob Liefeld doesn't tend to draw wounds or anything like that, but he's not looking good. And Tolliver says, oh, well, you know, they'll get him taken care of, but then you'll have to pay the bill, which to me at least locates them firmly in the United States. Exactly. Um, the injuries do seem to be pretty severe, though. I mean, Cable shot Black Tom's goatee clean off. It's not even drawn here. Oh, God. Now... That's bad. Right? We'll ultimately find out that this weird surgery that Tolliver is talking about will turn Black Tom into, like, a living tree, which is going to stay with his character for a really long time, and I never fully understood, understood. I mean, I guess he can channel power through his shillelagh, so, ooh, maybe he's getting turned into a giant shillelagh. I believe that him being a, a living plant dude is officially a secondary mutation at this point, that that's, that's where it's categorized. Okay, so Tolliver must have just triggered the already uh, existing tendency for Black Tom to get shillelified. What would have been really funny would be if he had somehow done that artificially, not knowing that it was also going to be Black Tom's secondary mutation. Oh, wow. Serendipity. Anyway, that's all we're going to see of them for quite a while, because X-Force is watching the news where a reputably top-knotted Gideon pins the World Trade Center attack, not just on Black Tom and Juggernaut, but on Cable and X-Force. And Boom Boom is concerned that this makes them look like total lizards. I would argue that that is firmly on the shoulders of the art team. <laughs> Pretty much that. So she's worried because now S.H.I.E.L.D. and G.W. Bridge, their leader who apparently has some kind of history with Cable and Domino, is going to be after them even more. Hey, I don't care if he's your sister wearing a tutu and spoon-feeding you tapioca. He wants your hide, Cable, and I'm assuming as a result, ours too. Cable doesn't give a shit about them being outlaws, or, you know, about much for that matter. Cannonball's upset, and Cable tells Cannonball that, well, maybe he should just join his old teammate Sunspot and work with Gideon. Like, Cable, that is uncalled for. Sam is already sad that Roberto is working with this top-knotted jerk, and now you're just rubbing it in? Like, honestly, there are so many scenes here where I fully expected Cannonball and Boom Boom to just say, you know what, fuck this. This is not the team we were a part of. Who is this guy? So two remarks. One is that Cable's approach here is very, very early video game moral choices. It's, it's the save the puppy, kill the puppy. Mm, right. And second, Boom Boom has become the rogue of X-Force. Explain. I'm curious about this. She is the sassy, brassy southerner with really, really stretched metaphors. Oh, well, yes, that she is. And no Gs. Another thing, though, is that Cable's been written by, uh, I think, two main writers at this point, Louise Simonson and Fabian Nicieza slash Rob Liefeld. Simonson, I think, just wrote him as a lot nicer. Like, he was a tough, no-nonsense guy. He was all about the most efficient means to an end. But he wasn't, like, a deliberate dick to his kids. Remember that time he tied Rain up in a straitjacket because she was turning into a princess? I do remember that time. Oh, X-Men. Anyway, not everybody's in here watching the news because Warpath, for his part, is channeling his anger as he runs through the woods. My heart is fire, burn with passion. Vittorio, killed by General George Crook, 1880. Mangus Colorado signs a treaty, its words ignored. Still they come. My body is wind, feel it soar. And he goes on and on talking about all of these atrocities that the white man has perpetuated on Native Americans and psyching himself up more and more to be a warrior. And I actually really dig this. Nicias's dialogue sells this character well. 
And James Proudstar is a character that hasn't really been fleshed out very much. I mean, he had like a minor romance with Daniel Moonstar back in New Mutants, and he was always the only reasonable member of the Hellions, or at least one of the only reasonable members. But this is the first time we've ever seen traits that weren't related to another person, traits that are internal to James Proudstar. Also, way to actually work in intersectional diversity. Like, they're talking about the oppression of Native Americans in a comic that's also about the oppression of mutants. Like, this is 1992. I, I kind of forgot that they did that occasionally. Yay, and about the fact that mutants can also perpetuate that oppression and commit those atrocities as happened in this particular case. Exactly. He likens the Hellfire Club to the people who have betrayed the Native Americans in the past, and he is all about revenge at this point. Like, fair enough, dude. Accurate. All white, and they're functionally colonizers, so yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah, pretty much. Well, Emmanuel's Acosta's black, but uh, he's already dead, so, you know, whatever. Yeah, he's he was dead at that point. Now, what about Shatterstar? Shatterstar is training shirtless in the danger room against what appears to be the training droid from A New Hope. Feral watches and comments. OJ, this one's you. Oh, God. I've always fought for my survival. Every day, what am I eating tonight? Who's going to try to get me to purr this time? Not him. She was taught to fight as a way of life. To entertain people. Subtle difference. All the difference in the world. That's why he gets me going. Pretty cool. Either I'm going to love him, or I'm going to kill him. <coughs> she also calls him Shaddy Buns repeatedly, and I really wish Nisaza would stop trying to make Shaddy Buns happen. I think it's hilarious. It's not even euphonious. It just sounds weird every time you try to say it aloud or say it in your head. I love it. Yeah, you know how some words stop sounding like a word when you've said them like 10 or 15 times? That stops sounding like a word immediately. <laughs> it totally does. So Feral flirts with Shatterstar, uh, during which Shatterstar takes off his weird facial buttresses, revealing amazing, amazing hat hair. But I like this. This is a comic that's been very action-oriented, and getting a chance for one of the quiet issues, kind of like the old Claremont quiet issues, if, you know, more violent and more strangely drawn, I dig that. I think we, that's, that's something we need in this title. And getting to know especially new characters like Feral and Shatterstar, who haven't really had all that much of a personality yet, that's a really good move on Nicieza and, I think, Liefeld's part. Now, I noticed that Shatterstar... God. <laughs> Just a sec. I'm going to drink some water. Farrell's voice fucking destroys me. Um, Anyway. Uh, where was I? Right. The, the facial buttresses in this are actually like sparring-style headgear. They sort of vaguely make sense. Kind of like the way they seem to be portraying Shatterstar in Deadpool 2, based on what we've seen in the trailer, right? I guess so, assuming that that's Shatterstar. Yeah, it could also be a very small grizzly. Hard to say. A lot of people wore, wore weird stuff on their faces like that back in 1992. They did. I really hope it's Shatterstar, just because Shatterstar's hilarious, but... And meanwhile, Siren is watching all of this sparring and, you know, flirting from the Danger Room's control booth. I guess they sort of have a Danger Room here. It's very unclear. Miles, everyone has a Danger Room. They're, you can get them in the bo bottoms of cereal boxes these days. Oh, maybe that's where that little door in the basement of Castle Sexy Dracula leads. I should check that out. Um, very carefully. That is, uh, that is definitely, definitely where it leads, only by danger room, it's probably, we probably mean crawl space under the porch full of dead raccoons and possibly humans. Yikes. Anyway, um, Cable takes this opportunity to offer Siren a job. Welcome to X-Force. And why am I so certain I'll live to regret hearing those words? Pardon my bitter, cynical shell. 
person can be getting that way, you know, when everything and everyone they've ever loved turned to rot around them. Again, uh, I'm going to take the same approach with Siren that we always have with Banshee, which is just to not even try to do the accent. You will fit right in, won't you? I love Nisieza's dialogue here. I genuinely love it. Like, I know he's doing a bunch of action movie stuff, but it just works so well. And, like, his cable may be an asshole, but he's a really enjoyable-to-read-about asshole. Yeah, no, he's doing action movie stuff because X-Force at this point is an early 90s action movie only with more teeth. And you can't have an action movie without a bunch of people figuring out what to do about the action heroes. So over in Washington, D.C., uh, we've got G.W. Bridge, Nick Fury, Henry Peter Gyrick, and Val Cooper. Um, they are all meeting to, to figure out how to solve a problem like Cable. And now I'm just hearing how do you solve a problem like Maria, but it's about Nate Summers. And now I'm seeing Nate Summers like spinning around joyously on top of a mountain and getting married to the Von Trapp patriarch and raising a bunch of kids and making them clothing out of, out of bedsheets. And I love everything about this except the Nazis. Fucking Nazis. Except in, instead of teaching them to sing, he teaches them to fight. Like X-Force of the, are the Von Trapp kids? Oh, man. And so instead of Do-Re-Mi, it's like uh, Bang, Pow, Explode or something? Well, I, I assume they're like learning parts of guns or types of guns or something, and I don't actually know enough about guns to, to go further with this. But if we have any lyrically inclined weapons aficionados listening, feel free to let us know what you think. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, your one-stop shop for strange comparisons between X-Force and the sound of music. It really is pretty easy to imagine him, like, spinning joyously through the hills, though. But he's still scowling the whole time. It's great. Yes. Anyway, Val Cooper, as they discuss how to solve a problem like Nate Summers, mentions that while X-Factor is getting there, they're not really ready to go after X-Force, which, I mean, yeah, okay, fair enough. There's a lot that X-Factor's still not ready for. <laughs> That's quite true. GW Bridge, who's supposed to be in charge of this operation since he's, you know, the member of the of S.H.I.E.L.D. who's supposed to go after Cable, he's trying to play it safe. I mean, Cable and Domino are old friends, but he does think their actions are making it harder for mutants to be seen as legitimate, which, you know, I can kind of see where he's coming from. X-Force's actions are pretty extreme. <laughs> Henry Peter Gyrick, who, of course, we've seen as anti-mutant dickbag in Avengers X-Men pretty much everywhere. He just hates mutants. Well, also, like, everyone. And he is reactivating Project Wide Awake. Remember Project Wide Awake? Man, remember when Henry Peter Gyrick was vaguely reasonable when he was basically the Walter Peck of Marvel? Yeah, I, I kind of miss that. He's just awful at this point. Yeah, Project Wide Awake, that is the government's ill-defined and shadowy plan that they came up with post-Days of Future Past, like, you know, the storyline, not the far future timeline, um, after there was the attempted assassination on Senator Kelly's life. So that coming back, that's a problem. Yeah, that's going to be bad, bad news. As they meet, worse things yet are afoot. Carl Lykos in New York. Do you guys remember Carl Lykos? He turns into a psychic wear pterodactyl, but um, not right now, because he got better in a story we didn't cover in Marvel Fanfare number four. Okay, Lycos has hung up his pterodactyl jorts and is now enjoying life as an ordinary guy buying ordinary groceries in an ordinary city walking along an ordinary street to his ordinary apartment where his ordinary girlfriend is unconscious because Blob and Toad have broken in. God damn it, Blob and Toad. Yeah, they're there to demand that Lycos turn back into Sauron and join the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that Toad is founding. And I gotta say, when I first got to this page, the first time I read this comic, 
I was surprised because, you know, Toad has taken the lead a couple times. He made a weird theme park in the story with Dr. Doom. It was very strange. But usually, his name is kind of apt. He's sort of a toady. It's very rare that he ever does anything on his own rather than as a subservient underling. And when he does, it tends not to go well. So seeing him leading a new brotherhood, that was surprising. And I gotta say, I think it's a kind of cool story decision. I feel like this is this is the version of Toad who informed the one I first saw, which is the Age of Apocalypse Toad. Yeah, I can totally see that parallel. Totally see that parallel. Yeah. Oh, man. Actually, that Toad is a good guy, and he's really cool, and I really like him. This Toad is not as cool. Um, And he also has way, 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 way too many teeth. I know I said everyone has too many teeth, but the villains in particular, and Toad most among them, but really still everyone. There are so many teeth in this comic. Okay, let's talk about this. So the way, in this case, not Liefeld, but the fill-in artists on this episode do the same thing, handle teeth, is you'll see these just sort of white rows of something. And they're not separated into teeth, but you can see like the part that goes into the gum where there's the kind of diagonal V part that goes down. You can see the tops of the teeth. So you can kind of count them, but it's hard to get a really accurate count. You can sort of see the shapes of them. You, you rarely see the edges drawn in. And sometimes the shapes of them are drawn in so that it looks like people have not only top and bottom teeth, but middle teeth. I counted 48 teeth, but uh, like we were talking about, it's kind of hard to tell for sure. How many teeth did you count, listeners? There's, there's a later panel where he definitely has more than that, so we'll see. Now, the last time we saw Blob was with Pyro, and that was in the story The Killing Stroke, in which they were captured. So obviously they have, they have broken out by now to join the third incarnation of the Brotherhood because Magneto led the first, Mystique led the second, which turned into Freedom Force. Toad is leading number three. Go Toad, way to come into your own. And in the tradition of, of his first and most beloved leader, he has prepared a proper introductory villain speech. My name is Mortimer Toynbee. The gentleman introducing his fingertips to your neck is named Fred Dukes. Like you, we are mutants. We are best known, perhaps, to the masses as the Toad and the Blob. And we are here to make you a proposition, or rather to your more histrionic alter ego. They secure Carl and Tanya upside down to a wall in fancy metal underwear and force Lycos to absorb Tanya's life force with a resounding zzzrax. Say goodbye to your perfect world, Dr. Lycos. Say hello to the new age of mutant Armageddon! Yeah, okay. I really enjoy Toad's dialogue here. Like, he's become this... He's the sort of person you can see being obsessed with his own intellect, where he's been knocked around and seen as inferior for so long, that this is an area where he sees himself as able to really excel. Especially when he's next to Fred Dukes, the blob, who historically is perhaps not the most eloquent or intelligent supervillain. He should change his codename to Um, actually... Oh, God, he totally should. Toad is right in this case. He he manages to, to re-trigger Sauron, who emerges com complete with little purple pants. Now, I guess he's taking a cue from the Hulk to cry. Carl Lycos is no more, you pedantic, misshapen pustule. I have returned. Do you hear me, you soft, pink bags of rice paper flesh? Sauron is back. Jazzin. That takes us to X-Force number six, Under the Gun. Speaking of villain speeches, this one opens with a doozy from Strife. And I gotta say, I love the art here. Or at least the first page of art. The rest, the, the, the upcoming ones are, are just sort of 
pictures of characters on monitors. But in the first one, Strife is slumped in a huge fucking throne with a skull on top. And no one's around except for Zero. So he's just in his throne giving this fantastically petulant villain speech. They look at me and laugh, Zero. Let them. It's all working to perfection. They look at me and see someone who claims to be the preeminent mutant terrorist of his time. They look and laugh because they think they see a failure. My safe houses have been uncovered. My mission's undone. Cable and his little X-Force cannon fodder have insinuated themselves into our operations time and time again. And they all laugh, thinking me unimportant in the greater scheme of things. How little they know of what has been and what is to come. Uh, no, no, Strife, I'm pretty sure they're laughing at your outfit, buddy. Or because X-Factor played tug-of-war with him. But anyway... Really, there are so many reasons to laugh at Strife. But anyway... He continues. Look at them all, Zero. These self-proclaimed movers and shakers of the mutant movement on this pathetic little planet. Gideon. Money is his manner. More the fool he. Cable. So inherently noble. So destined to fail. Bishop and Fitzroy. What's the saying? A stitch in time? Poor fools, these two. It's a really long speech. They are but minor threads in the greater tapestry of existence. Xavier and Magneto, yin and yang, order and chaos. Never to learn they could do so much more together than apart, if only each would make sacrifices of ego. So many players in the game, all thinking themselves the chessmen in control of the pieces on the board. Um, do, do you mean player strife? Because I, I, I think you might mean player there, buddy. A shame they don't realize how limited their perspectives are. How sadly lacking their plans are. Let them think me laughable. A failure, a minor pawn. Too late will they realize that only someone who has tried and failed time and again knows the dirty road that lies ahead. Let them laugh, Zero, because my greatest failure is still to come, and all the players in the game will see it happen, and think my role in the matter concluded. And when all is said and done, when the dust is settled on the battlefield, that's when we both know who will be laughing last, don't we, Zero? Oh yes, we do indeed. It's like he learned to villain monologue from, like, Cliff's notes or something. He's got... The general idea, but he's not quite there. I mean, I don't know. Like, as somebody who just read three full paragraphs of Strife villaining at the reader, it's really fun to do. He's just got such a wonderful sense of mastermindy smugness. And even though the plot will only kind of back that up, it's still just delightful. But what he's actually saying is nonsense. He's gonna lose so hard. They haven't seen how hard he can lose yet. Ah, but it's important to note that at the end of this speech, Strife unclicks his helmet, taking those blades, presumably very carefully, off his head and reminds the reader, and reminds Zero, I guess, who hasn't said anything, maybe it's just a mannequin wearing Zero's clothes, I don't know, that he looks exactly like Cable. I assume that Zero is doing the minioning equivalent of letting him cry it out. Like, he's just learned that when Strife starts on a monologue you just kind of have to let it wait wait for him to tire himself out and then you can put him to bed 
Maybe Zero's got earbuds in it. He's just like listening to a podcast or something. That would explain a lot about Zero in general. <laughs> Wouldn't it? So during this whole speech, we see mostly just a whole lot of giant word balloons, but we also see these monitors that Strife has in his office, study, wherever he is. His, his headquarters, his villain room. His villain room that have pictures of each of the characters he's talking about, so like Fitzroy, Bishop, Xavier, etc. They're an odd scale for monitors. Are they monitors, or does he just sort of have sort of a Warhol-style big picture of all of them on his wall? Oh man, superhero pop art. Like, I mean, that that is very Warhol. It's true. It, well, if it were Warhol, it would just be the same one over and over, which it kind of is here. They've all got the same face. Exactly. Now, Rob Liefeld does have many positive qualities as an artist, but facial distinctiveness is not one of them. When you have a bunch of monitors and it, the only way you can tell which character is Cable and which character is Xavier is the fact that one of them is bald, I feel like there's maybe a problem. Maybe you have to count their teeth. Maybe, but they both have their mouths mostly closed. Oh, Trixie. What I find even weirder is that I can't tell Xavier from Gideon. I know, because Gideon just has that top knot that's sort of sticking out the top of his head randomly. You can't really see where it connects. And it's only visible sometimes. Oh, Liefeld, you scamp. But Strife, Strife is distinctive because during this monologue, he takes off his helmet and he's got Cable's face. Specifically, he's got Cable's face complete with the scars and the eye flash. And those are going to go away in later versions, but they're still being drawn in here. We've seen this happen once before, and that was the end of New Mutants 100. Exactly. That was the great big twist, and now it's finally being followed up on. Is it? Though it's not really. He just took off his helmet again and then put it back on. Well, it's being referenced at least. They're just letting us know that they didn't forget. Like, you remember that whole thing how Courtney Ross got killed and then her life was taken, o taken over by Satire 9 and then the writers just totally forgot about it? They're letting us know here that they remember, as does Pepperidge Farms. Why does Pepperidge Farm remember strife? It was their tagline. They remember everything. Everything. Is that why they drink? Uh, yeah, probably. Well, while Strife is monologuing at the very patient Zero, meanwhile, the Morlocks and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are making an alliance. Now, Mask is initially hesitant to hitch his wagon to the Brotherhood, but Thorn, that's Thorn with two ends for no good reason. Uh, Feral's sister, who wants all sorts of revenge, talks Mask into it. And, and I assume that Thorn is specifically won over by Toad's exceptional and exorbitant number of teeth. T and I sat down and counted them. And if you ignore the fact that there looks like a middle row and you assume that his bottom teeth are just like two to three times as long as his top teeth, he's got at least 52. I caught 44 in here. Like we said, it's kind of hard to tell. I also counted Blob. He has 35. And Fantasia, a new member of the Brotherhood who's got like this cool looking flat mask on her face and a big purple cape. She only appears to have one. Like it's just one big bar of tooth inside her mouth. It's got to be easy to floss at least. Yeah, well. Like for Toad, that's easily half his day just gone right there. I mean, dental hygiene is very important to the aspiring supervillain. As, as is, at least for Toad, the pretense of politeness. Forgive my blob's manners, Mask. His gruffness is born of a lifetime's worth of emotional hardship. I love this Toad so much. I mean, he's a terrible, terrible person. Like, he killed Carl Lycos' girlfriend just to turn Carl Lycos into a psychic were-pterodactyl in jorts, and that's not cool, but he's a really fun villain in this era. Actually... Sauron doesn't wear jorts in this story. Initially, he's got long pants, and then he wears a weird little, like, very heavy, maybe neoprene loincloth. Oh. Well, I take the jorts part back, but I stand by the rest of it. This is not the Sauron we knew. 
I miss those jorts. So they're they're off. They're out there somewhere with Peter Corbeau. <gasps> Peter Corbeau in jorts. He would be unstoppable. I know. I know. So I own PeterCorbeau.com. Um, I, I assume you know this. I don't know if our listeners know this, but um, I, I own that domain. And there's nothing there right now, but someday it's going to be a real sexy pinup of Peter Corbeau uh, looking meaningfully at, at the viewer. It's just going to play like 10 seconds of his theme song and then it's going to redirect. But he, he may have tiny jorts. I like this plan. And speaking of sexiness, sort of, back at X-Force headquarters, Domino and Cable are taking a bath. Their bathtub is so big. I am so jealous of their bathtub. It is seriously enormous. I mean, it's sort of a top-down perspective, and you can see one of them at each end facing each other, but I've never seen a bathtub like that. It's like it's like a, a hot tub, maybe? A weirdly shaped no, hot tub? you could swim laps in that fucking thing. Like, they have their legs all the way extended, and its size and depth vary significantly from panel to panel. And also, they might be doing sex stuff in it. It's really unclear. Um, possibly, actually, strategic planning. They're definitely in a bathtub. I mean, I feel like this bathtub, I think you could fit all of X-Force in there. I think you should fit all of X-Force in there. It could be like a team-building activity. It would be appropriate, too, because we know that Dom- we know from the scene that Domino wears clothing in the bathtub. So, you know, presumably they could just all pile in in their swimsuits and sit there awkwardly. What was that Shel Silverstein poem, Jay? Oh, I actually, this, this is one of the things, like, filling up space in the annals of my memory, along with the details of how Cyclops' optic blast works, um, is, uh, there are too many kids in this tub. There are too many elbows to scrub. I just washed a behind that I'm sure wasn't mine. There are too many kids in this tub. Well, anyway, X-Force isn't here right now, which is probably why Domino has that, um, climactic expression on her face in one panel. I also know one about Superman. Oh? Look what we found in the park in the dark. We'll take it home. We'll call it Clark. It will live in our house. It will grow and grow. Will our mother like this? We don't know. It's actually about a head in a jar, but I think it might be about Superman. There's there's one other point I want to bring up. Who who did they steal this HQ from? Was it Weapon X? Uh, it was the Trasks, actually. It was a Trask facility, you know, like the uh, company that made Sentinels. Did it come with the bathtub, or was the bathtub imported? Because we find out in this scene that they've been getting their weapons from AIM, so maybe they ordered, like, this super bathtub at the same time, or maybe the Trasks are just really into, like, killer robots, anthropology, and luxurious bubble baths. You know, they are Legion, they contain multitudes. No, no, David Holler is Legion. Oh, you know what I mean. Anyway, while Cable and Domino are in their seriously gigantic bath, like check the as mentioned listeners, Boom Boom and Sam are hanging out in the kitchen. They are, uh, and Boom Boom is trying to teach Cannonball how to properly flip peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Is that a thing? Do you do that? Admittedly, I've never made a PB&J. Wait, I I might have when I was like a little kid. I'm like hardcore allergic to peanuts, so this isn't just weird sloth. I make sandwiches out of other things. I mean, I guess you could, like, do grilled peanut butter and jelly. Would that be good? Maybe grilled peanut butter and banana? I don't know. I'm going to try this sometime. That was a, That's an Elvis thing, I think. Oh, maybe you end up dead on the toilet if you try one of those. I mean, that's probably a more civilized way to die than how X-Force is going to, or at least seems to be setting themselves up to. And boom, boom, in addition to having strong feelings about the proper way to flip a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, yeah, no, they're not making it on the stove. It's just like on a napkin on the countertop. I don't understand what she's trying to teach Sam to do here. Fabian Nicieza, justify yourself, please. Anyway, 
in addition to wanting Sam to flip his sandwich properly, is it, maybe it's a euphemism? Anyway. Um, I love how stuck we're getting on this. It's weird, man. It's, it's totally weird. Okay, but um, Boom Boom wants nothing to do with Farrell, um, who, who comes in to watch the sandwich-making lesson. But Sam is surprisingly quick to forgive and forget, um, which, again, is, I know I just said it, but it remains surprising, considering that he was the one whom Farrell literally disemboweled a few issues ago. Well, Boom Boom isn't having any of it and says so. Who gives a pair of underwear what mood you're in? Who gives a pair of underwear indeed? Long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. She is the rogue of X-Force. God, she totally is. Well, speaking of long-tailed cats, Farrell is super upset that Boom Boom is being mean to her. And as Boom Boom and Sam leave the room, Farrell takes three full panels to call this a big mistake. Which judgment she emphasizes with all of the breasts, muscles, teeth, and hair at her disposal, all of which are significant. Outside, Shatterstar and Warpath are fighting. You know, for fun. Uh, whoever wins gets to keep all the fun. Exactly. And Siren is refereeing, which is actually a pretty smart move, given that she can fly, and it's real hard to ignore her when she yells stop. There's a lot of punching and stuff, and a lot of calling little uh, fighting staves swords. Eh, whatever. But... Nobody gets disemboweled or calls anybody else shatty buns, so I'm going to call this a general victory. But then, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who apparently are very, very sneaky, attacks. We've got Pyro, Blob, and Sauron, and then Toad. And they all have so many teeth, except weirdly for Sauron. I mean, do pterodactyls have teeth? I've never seen a pterodactyl. Yes. Oh. I'm pretty sure pterodactyls had teeth. But I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about all the teeth in the mouths, and I was thinking about what thought process would have to go through your mind as an artist, like an adult artist, not like a six- or seven-year-old who's just drawing a person with a zillion fingers and teeth, um, which kids sometimes do. But, like, those teeth are individually drawn. So, like, is this just how Rob Liefeld sees the world? Maybe. So do you remember that old show, The Critic, that was done by some of the same people that did The Simpsons? So the main character's dad was a very weird dude. It was possible he was supposed to be senile. I'm, I'm not sure. But he was just very weird. And at one point, Jay asks his dad if his dad remembers how his dad met his mom. Uh, Jay is the main character of The Critic, is the name of the main character of The Critic. I'm not involved in this. Jay Sherman, not Jay Edidin. And uh, Jay's dad is like, yes, and goes into this old, like, Betty Boop, Mary Melodies style black and white cartoon montage of a bunch of animal people, like, lining the street and cheering while Jay's parents are like walking down in their wedding gear and hitting each other with mallets a whole bunch and flattening each other. I think it might be like that, but you know, with teeth for Rob. In all fairness, that does actually sound a lot like a scenario my dad would come up with as an answer to that question. But seriously, like imagine living in a world in, in the world of Rob Liefeld's imagination all the time. Do you think that's just like a lot of biting? Or a very thorough chewing. I bet nobody chokes on their food. What about their teeth? Like, do you think they lose them and they grow back? Do you think they've got, like, layers of them shark style? Oh, maybe it's like one of those dreams where your teeth are all falling out and it's all creepy and that's why you have to have so many. Do you think his comics are some kind of, like, magic, some, some sort, of, sort of protective hex to keep himself from having those dreams, to stave them off? That's, his, that's the reason for his entire comics career. That's the reason for that Levi 501 jeans commercial. It all stems back to those creepy tooth dreams. I have so much more sympathy now. I really love pretending that things that are fairly likely accidental and being done under time pressure have, like, intricate, deliberate purpose behind them. And I feel like I need to say that we're pretending that because people get really conspiracy theorists about this stuff. 
Hmm, I suppose they do, but I also think you just described about half of our podcast. Yeah, but we usually do it in continuity and not about creators. I just I just really like the idea of there being purpose behind all those teeth. Because the idea of those teeth just floating purposeless in the void of the universe is even more upsetting. Speaking of things that are floating purposelessly through the void of the universe, that takes it to X-Force number seven, Under the Knife. In which Warpath asks the question that we've been asking now for almost four years. Why the hell does the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants keep the word evil in their name? To which Toad replies, Brotherhood we aspire to, Warpath. Mutants we are by privilege and power of birth. Evil we prefer by conceit of desire. I gotta say, that's actually, that's actually a really good answer. I think they think it sounds cool. Well, there's a big fight, during which we find out the Toad can now secrete slime, which, ugh. It's Resin. Is he also a tree person now? Eh, let's just go ahead and say yes. And after fighting Sauron in the sky, Shatterstar goes to run off to get some guns, and he returns in time to save Siren from Toad and Toad's weird resin. So Shatterstar has a big future gun, a tactical vest, and some especially questionable proportions, which, you know, it happens. Warpath mentions that Blob fell into a ravine. He's, he's taken care of that. That kind of reminds me. I mean, so I think what's happening here is that Nicieza is attempting to use dialogue to cover up the fact that the art just suddenly forgot that Blob was in the story. And that kind of reminds me of when we used to play role-playing games and Harrison would run the games and whenever a player couldn't show up, the plot justification would be that their character just fell down a manhole and then climbed out by the uh, time the next session started. It kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, I always really appreciated that conceit. Me too. While while this fight is going on, Mask, Thorn, and Fantasia, uh, spelled P-H-A-N-T-A-Z-I-A, because if I have to read this word, then you have to at least imagine it, all sneak into X-Force's base. Now, Fantasia, who, you know, is new as of this story, apparently she has electromagnetic interference powers, which are kind of like magnetism in that they can basically just do whatever. But she also looks rad as hell. Now, we touched on this earlier when we first mentioned her, but she's got this mask that covers her entire face, sort of a big flat surface, giant hair, and this big fuchsia cape with only shadows under it that is her body. Kind of like Cloak from Cloak and Dagger, but way more 90s. Yeah, she's kind of like what you'd get if you crossed Cloak with OG Psylocke. She just looks super awesome. Like, we give Lightfell's art a lot of shit, but his Fantasia design is just straight up rad. Mask is just kind of getting his Orko on. He's basically just teeth and eyes and a big hood void. When we actually see his head, it's really big and weird. It's very strange. It kind of reminds me of when Cameron Hodge was wearing a hood. Um, I think it was after Inferno. Anyway, once he was, uh, you know, revealed to be a big villain, and you would just see, like, the smile and glasses in the void of it, and it looks creepy, but it's just such a radical departure from the previous design of either character. That was definitely during Inferno, because it was around when Angel decapitated him. Ooh, yeah, right. Cable shows up and startles the baddies with some warning shots, which, I gotta say, I'm surprised he didn't hit. He's not very far away, but later on the dialogue mentions that Fantasia was jamming his gun's guidance systems, but, like, even without guidance systems, it can't be that hard. I mean, it's Cable. Maybe he is to gun guidance systems as you are to phone navigation and that he will just rely on them blindly. Oh, that could be. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do get directions on my phone when I drive basically anywhere. But you also ignore your surroundings in favor of the directions on the phone, which is how you accidentally went to Arkansas once and how, in this case, Cable misses fairly obvious shots. Meh. Mia culpa. 
But enormous guns aren't Cable's only weapons. He's also got badass action dialogue on his side. Again and again and again. You have no idea how tired I'm getting of playing the game with you, Mask. You seem to have some kinky need to invade our home, no matter where we pitch our tent. You're a walking autopsy! End of story! I can't tell whether Pitch Our Tent was supposed to be a continuing play on Kinky Need. And it's really bugging me that I can't tell. Hard to say, but there's another big fight, and Farrell and Thorne, the sisters we're now seeing united on panel for the first time, have a... Well, it's a cat fight. It's just a straight-up cat fight. Well, literally, because they're both cats. In fact, I think they comment on it repeatedly. And they're, they're mostly silhouettes. You only see brief accents, like bits of Farrell's costume and hair streaks, thorns, pouches, and headgear. And it makes no sense, and it's kind of clearly a shortcut, but it, it looks pretty cool. And we also, incidental to all of this, learn things like their first names. Specifically, Farrell is named Maria Kaya Santos, and Thorne is named Lucia Kaya Santos. And boy, do they hate each other, and boy, do they look cool in this fight. Yeah, um, their issues with each other, we learn, have to do with some terrible family history, which we will much later learn involves a lot of murder and also some pigeons. Cannonball, for his part, tries to attack Fantasia by blasting into her cloak and trying to expand his blast field, but she manages to disrupt his body's bioelectric field and shorts out his power. As with magnetism, let's just go with it and assume that that makes total sense. X-Force retreats. But as they do, Sauron and Cannonball run into each other, and Cannonball decides that he's going to attack, even though his powers aren't quite working. And Sauron, we learn, has huge talons on his wings and stabs one right the hell through Sam's chest. Boom Boom and Cable run up, and Boom Boom is horrified. Sam? Oh, God, jeez, God. Sam? Boom Boom, wait, don't... He's not breathing! He's not moving! Cable, God, he's dead? And Cannonball is, in fact, for the moment, straight up dead. Don't worry, he'll be okay, but continuity won't because the externals are coming, baby. And I really wish they weren't. This is the beginning of the High Lords plot, a plot line that will be largely abandoned by almost every writer going forward. But for now, it's going to be the name of the game. Now, when you say High Lords, should we assume along the lines of High Evolutionary, as in... Clearly, this is the justification for his position. I mean, I think it might be the justification for the plot being created itself. But still, I gotta say, despite the fact that it's literally spoiled on the cover, this was a huge shock. Like, normally when you think a character's dead, they go missing or they fall off a cliff or whatever. And here, we do see Sam Guthrie impaled on this giant goddamn talon. And it's a dramatic enough scene that I'm inclined to forgive the fact that I don't think Sauron actually had talons like that. But still, big deal, founding new mutant, now deceased. Maybe he traded his jorts for talents. That seems likely. How many talents do you think you can get for a good jort these days? I mean, if they're pterosaur jorts? Mm-hmm. Those are the best jorts. Clearly. So, anyway, um, I, I don't really feel like there's much we can say to wrap this up aside from all the teeth. So many teeth. Forever teeth. This is like, this. I feel like I, I finally understand where the X-Men anime got it from. Oh, right. Good point. Well, we can wrap up by saying that there's also a four-page story called Extenuating Circumstances in this issue that stars the new Weapon X, Garrison Kane. Um, but we're going to get to that next time because it's just part one of a bunch of other parts, and by itself it wouldn't make a lot of sense. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Jeffrey Allen asks on Twitter, is there somewhere I can read about the difference between a writer and a scripter? 
Okay, so Jay, correct me if I'm wrong on this because I know you're the comics editor, but it's so rare that I get to answer craft questions and I think I actually know this one, so I'm going to give it a shot. Now, I've usually seen the distinction as being uh, as plotters versus scripters or just plots versus scripts. Plots are basically what happens overall. It's the order of events, what characters do what. It's what happens in a comic. It's the basics of it. Now, in Marvel-style comics writing, this is step one. Art is then step two. The plotter gives the plots to the artist. The artist draws all the pages. And then at that point, that leads into step three, which is scripting. So the scripter receives the finished or mostly finished art and then adds word balloons and dialogue to it to sort of finish the whole damn thing. Often in comics where the plotting and or the art doesn't fully make sense, the scripters can sort of create dialogue justifications for why a character suddenly vanishes, like, you know, blob falling off that cliff that Warpath mentions, or why continuity is broken, why things don't really make as much sense, like the time that Louise Simonson mentions in X-Factor Forever that Cyclops is using his optic blast to light a trick candle where that could actually work. Now, generally, and what we've seen for the vast majority of issues that we've covered, the same person plots and scripts. That's steps one and three, and then the art team draws in step two. That tends to work very, very well. I mean, the writer will write the plot, the writer knows what's going to happen, and then later on, the writer can match dialogue to how the art actually turned out. It usually ends up pretty cohesive. It makes a lot of sense. But in the early 90s, we often see somebody like Rob Liefeld or Jim Lee or Wills Portacio both plotting and penciling, but not scripting. And then they bring in somebody like John Byrne or Scott Lobdell to do scripts. At that point, the scripter might have some gymnastics to do to make the thing make sense. And I think that's what we often see here. Doesn't always work so well. So there's one other point of disambiguation I want to make. I think you've mostly got it. And that is that the term scripter is one that only exists, is only used when a separate person writes the dialogue. Normally, the script for a comic is is the writing part. So if it's just a plot, it's, it's a plot script. Or if it's, you know, a full script, it's still a script. But the person who wrote it would just be credited as writer. Exactly, yeah. So I hope that makes sense. If that was unclear, feel free to ask for clarification on the blog or whatever. Oh, and that's distinct from a lettering script, which is usually just dialogue correlated to the panels it appears in. Um, and I don't have I don't have examples of those on hand. I can try to find some online or whip some up real fast. Meanwhile, an anonymous listener on Tumblr would like to know who we think should teach sex ed at the Xavier School. So there was a very special Twitter thread about this a few years ago, which ultimately led to extensive speculation about Wolverine having some sort of degree in banana repair, which wasn't a euphemism, um, and which I guess I'll link to in the visual companion to this, because why not? So... I still haven't read this thread. You've alluded to it many, many times, but it's kind of becoming like the noodle incident for me where I start to get a slightly clearer or possibly way less clear picture every time you mention it, and I kind of love that. I almost don't want to read it. The thing I remember most vividly about it, aside from the whole banana repair tangent, um, was a textbook called Our Bodies, Our Bodies, Our Bodies, Our Bodies, Ourselves, which had um, Jamie Madrox's name in it and then like a 10-year break and then the cuckoos. (laughs) That's fucking awesome. But... To go back to the actual question, should, I'm going to go with Celia Reyes because I feel like she would probably be fairly matter-of-fact and accurate about it. She would give good comprehensive information and she would be at least fairly attuned to the different needs of different students based on mutations and cultural differences. That said, I think Magneto teaching sex ed would be fucking hilarious. God, it totally would. But ultimately, it would probably end up being Beast. Um, 
it would be taught as part of the science curriculum and nobody would realize that it was actually supposed to be sex ed because he would be so matter of fact and technical about it that it would end up being nigh useless. Legit. Now, I think that current school headmistress Kitty Pride would actually be a good mix of compassionate and informative, although I'm pretty sure she would assign Are You There, Goddess Me, Margaret as required reading. But I'm going to go ahead and vote for, relevant to this episode, Cable. Check this shit. So he raised Hope Summers through her entire adolescence, right, as they were traveling through the future? And given his obsession with combat effectiveness and general efficiency, I feel like he would have thoroughly educated himself on things like menstruation and birth control to make sure that Hope stayed the most effective soldier possible. As a teacher, he'd be blunt and harsh, but very clear. I disagree wholeheartedly for one specific reason. Yeah? Cable would be immediately sidetracked by the actual, and I'm not joking about this, large number of field uses for tampons. Oh, you're right. He would be so into that. Like, nosebleeds are only the beginning. Yeah, no, it's true. Tampons are an unbelievably multi-purpose item. And now you know. Do you think that's what he keeps in his pouches? Just tons of tampons? Yeah, probably. Cable's a mutant with a good attitude about menstruation. <laughs> that Kids in the Hall reference checked off. I'll go ahead and say that Jane Miles is a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement for, from a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. So, of course, let's go to the angry Claremontian narrator. You may think yourself a grandmaster, Debbie Kahn. That the pawns on the table bend to your machinations and manipulations, and that it is your gambit that will determine the ultimate fate of your hapless game pieces. But little do you know that your triumph or failure is but one move in the greater war of Lisa McLean. And you yourself, not even a knight. And I, I believe that the mic at this point goes to Toad. Please ignore the protestations of my voluminous compatriot, the Blob. My new and improved Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is still very much recruiting the best and brightest of mutant kind. With your ruthless assistance, Christopher and Remo, our righteous crusade of justified violence shall cleave a chasm through the false confidence of our oppressors. Now, while you have ably demonstrated the vicious potency of your mutant powers, one further assessment remains. Christopher, Remo, just how many teeth do you have? Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who, as far as we know, has only the normal number of teeth. New episodes of our toothy show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra teeth, including visual companions for every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported and toothed. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.teeth.com. Next week, Excalibur and their teeth are very much the worse for Alan Davis's absence. But their loss is Wolverine's gain. Also, there are psychic yetis. Psychic yetis. 